Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Back in 1970, some of the first Earth Day participants were quite serious, but others were rather eccentric. And CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite was skeptical. Still, he told America the Earth Day activists had something important to say. The gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Act or die. And nowadays, Earth Day brings news of the Goldman Environmental Prize winners, including one who's working to help restore Iraq's marshes. Now, you all have to understand that the marsh Arabs are not tree huggers like me or you. They are restoring the marshes because it is a way of life. It's a place where sustainable development has been practiced for thousands of years before we even knew this way of life by those terms. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Earth Day. It began in the style of the Vietnam War protests back in 1970 as a teach-in about America's and the world's badly polluted air and water. And on the CBS Evening News of April 22nd, Walter Cronkite explained its significance. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty, the fouled skies, the filthy waters, the littered earth. By some estimates, one in ten Americans participated in that first Earth Day. They were mostly young and white. Some were decorous and serious, while others were more whimsical and eccentric. Again, Walter Cronkite. The gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Act or die. Dennis Hayes, the coordinator of that first Earth Day, gave a call to action at the rally in Washington, D.C. We are systematically destroying our land, our streams, and our seas. We foul our air, deaden our senses, and pollute our bodies. That's what America's become. That's what we have to challenge. Well, 43 years later, Dennis Hayes is still going strong, and he joins me now from KUOW in Seattle to assess how Earth Day is standing up to being middle-aged. Welcome to Living on Earth, Dennis. Steve, it's always a pleasure to be here. So back in 1970, you were worried about air pollution in our environment and our bodies. How did we rise to that challenge? How are we better off today, or are we worse, the same? Well, we're both. Uh, we, we, we did a wonderful job with the things that are visible. And there was this period between 1970 and 1974 where we passed a Clean Air Act, a Clean Water Act, a Safe Drinking Water Act, a Marine Mammal Protection Act, an Endangered Species Act, an Environmental Education Act, and on and on. And, and where President Nixon felt political pressure that he succumbed to to set up an Environmental Protection Agency through an executive order. And all of that stuff took care of those clouds of smoke that were pouring out of our smokestacks and the really ugly crud that was fouling our rivers. And now we are wrestling with a whole bunch of things that are much more nuanced and sophisticated, many of them things that you can't smell or taste, most of them things that you can't see. But they are every bit as dangerous, and now we need to rise to this new set of challenges. As I understand it, Earth Day is the world's most widely observed secular holiday with uh, 170 or more countries celebrating. 
please give me some examples of how people celebrate Earth Day around the world. Oh, it, it's all over the place. We've had collections of more than 20,000 saffron-robed monks from around Southeast Asia coming together for a massive celebration of the Earth in Thailand. Uh, we've had uh, things in the most remote villages where Peace Corps volunteers have taken photographs of these things where uh, they're working on environmental projects, uh, sanitation projects and things. So Dennis, what is the focus of Earth Day today? In America, one thinks people are planting trees and picking up litter, or do you see Earth Day now as a force to take on the concerns of today, such as climate change? What, what the power of Earth Day historically has been, on those occasions when it really did have some enduring impacts, uh, the most impressive of them, I think, being 1970 and 1990, was to articulate a pretty strong set of values uh, but almost no um, restrictions upon how people chose to address those. So in the first one, we had folks who were pounding apart automobiles with sledgehammers to protest air pollution from automobiles. We had people who were uh, donning gas masks and marching down Fifth Avenue. In 1990, where the theme was, in essence, who says you can't save the world? And saying your individual behavior is important. We can protest the Exxon Valdez, but Americans who dump their used motor oil down the storm sewer are dumping more than 12 Exxon Valdezes into our most vulnerable waterways every year. Whenever we've tried to do something that is more narrowly tailored, it has uh, diminished in size spectacularly. So I, I think that its power in the future is going to be one of, once again, creating this framework and then encouraging uh, vast amounts of creativity out in the hinterland as people choose to do what they wish. What was the inspiration that uh, led you to become the national coordinator of the first Earth Day? Uh, I graduated from Stanford, went off to Harvard, uh, and saw this uh, piece in the New York Times about Senator Gaylord Nelson advocating the creation of a national environmental teach-in. I thought that I might be able to uh, persuade him to let me organize Harvard, or conceivably even Cambridge, or maybe even Boston. So I, uh, with the arrogance of, of youth flew down to Washington, D.C., got a 15-minute meeting set up with the senator, and it turned into about a three-hour meeting uh, as we discussed what one might do to uh, pull together this event, and I went back with the charter to organize Massachusetts, and two days later got a phone call asking whether I'd drop out of college and come down and organize the United States. For people at Harvard University, it probably seems that it's not a big step to move from Harvard University to the United States, but for me, it was a, a truly life-changing experience. Later in the show, we're going to walk around with you at the Bullet Center. That's a building your organization, the Bullet Foundation, touts as the greenest building in the world today. Can you tell me, what does it look like? What would I know from the outside looking at it that it's a special building? From the outside, probably the dominant characteristics are a huge solar array that sticks out on all sides like a mortarboard at a graduation ceremony. Remember, this is a building that in Seattle, where there isn't a lot of sunlight, generates as much energy over the course of a year from sunbeams hitting its roof as it uses. Uh, and the second really dominant characteristic are, are, are super efficient, very large self-operable windows that are four feet by 10 feet, weigh 700 pounds apiece, and provide a an internal atmosphere that encourages productivity, general happiness, uh, much greater health, and uh, makes our tenants, uh, people who 
want to remain in the building. Well, we'll be back to tell more about your uh, building later in the program. Dennis Hayes is president of the Bullet Foundation and is national coordinator of the first Earth Day and is chair of the Earth Day Network. Thank you so much, Dennis. It's a pleasure as always, Steve. small online nonprofit organization dedicated to covering the changing climate has won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting, beating out the major newspapers that usually win. Elizabeth McGowan, Lisa Song, and David Hassemeyer from Inside Climate News won for their coverage of an oil pipeline that carries tar sands oil from Canada. The Inside Climate team of reporters investigated the 2010 Enbridge pipeline spill in Michigan, which dumped a million gallons of that tar sands oil, also known as diluted bitumen, into the Kalamazoo River. Lisa Song, one of the winners, joins us via Skype. Lisa, we're all pretty excited here because you were once an intern with us at Living on Earth. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm really overwhelmed and honored and just, I I haven't processed it yet. Now, we spoke with you last year about the pipeline spill on the Kalamazoo River in Michigan in 2010, and... You told us about the diluted bitumen that flowed into the water there. Let's take a listen to what you said then. What spilled was not conventional crude oil. It was not the kind of oil that the EPA or the Coast Guard or any cleanup crews had experience with. It was diluted bitumen, which is different. It's a mix of really thick crude oil called bitumen and these light hydrocarbons. It's thick. It's like peanut butter, which is why they have to dilute it. And... What happened was the EPA went into the spill thinking it was a conventional crude oil spill. They thought everything was normal. And when this diluted bitumen spilled, it at first floated on the water. So that just reinforced the concept that it was regular crude oil. But over a period of days, the light hydrocarbons started evaporating. And after they evaporated, all you have left is the heavy bitumen. And that's what sank into the river. Now, the report that won the award was called the Dilbit Disaster. What role did you play in this? Um, I started out mostly reporting on the science of the oil and trying to figure out what actually happens scientifically when this diluted bitumen or Dilbit oil spills into water, uh, what scientists know and don't know about that. Later on, I started reporting more on the pipeline regulatory angle, writing about some flaws and gaps in the pipeline federal regulations. And then um, I also wrote a story about how most of the pipeline oil spills that happen in this country are actually detected by members of the public or people who work for the pipeline company on the ground. And only 5% were detected by uh, the, the computerized automatic leak detection systems that they have installed on these pipelines. Hmm. The alarm system don't work, in other words. There are problems with them, and it's very difficult for them to detect leaks remotely. So you've changed your pronunciation. Diluted bitumen or diluted bitumen? Um, I think I switch back and forth depending on my mood. <laughs> there's, there's multiple ways to pronounce it. I tend to use whatever I feel like that day. Dilbit, huh? Dilbit, yeah. That's why dilbit is easier to say. Now, the Pulitzer Prize comes at an apt time. Diluted bitumen is the same stuff that spilled when a pipeline burst in Mayflower, Arkansas on March 29th. You've been covering this story as well. How are things progressing? Um, They're continuing with the cleanup. 
the company responsible for that spill, ExxonMobil, they've just excavated the part of the pipeline that burst, and they're sending it to a laboratory for metal analysis to um, try and determine the exact cause of the rupture. And the U.S. Department of Transportation is down there conducting an investigation of the spill. Um, They're continuing to do air quality monitoring in the town. And, you know, there are something like 700 cleanup workers on site mopping up the oil. Well, they say that the diluted bitumen has to go through such high pressure because of its consistency. And these old uh, pipelines just aren't prepared for it. What have you found? Well, the interesting thing is the age of a pipeline alone doesn't determine whether it's in good shape or not. What what really matters is how well a company maintains the pipelines. So there are some brand new pipelines out there that are in really bad shape just because the companies aren't taking the adequate uh, measures to assess the risks and they're not maintaining it properly. And then there are ones that are really old, but the, if the company maintains them well, then they're perfectly safe. So I think it's a question of the maintenance of, of this pipeline and, and its regulatory history more than the age that will really matter in the end. But we don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. This is just a general statement of you know, what pipeline experts are saying. So thinking about environmental news coverage, what do you think about the Pulitzer going to an online organization that's devoted to covering climate change? Well, I think it shows that climate and environmental issues are are really important to the national conversation. Whether it's the Arkansas spill or the Michigan spill, they're both they both happen to be about uh, Dilbit, and that's the same substance that would be going through the Keystone XL pipeline, and that is a giant national conversation that's been going on for for many years. So. Once the Arkansas spill happened, a lot of people started to connect the dots and Arkansas became more than a story about what happened in Mayflower. It became part of the national debate about Keystone. Lisa Song is a reporter with Inside Climate News and a recent Pulitzer Prize winner. Thanks so much for joining us and congratulations again, Lisa. Thank you. Coming up, Copenhagen is on its way to become climate neutral by 2025. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. They call it Wonderful Copenhagen, and the Danish city is now determined that on a net basis, it will stop adding climate-changing gases to the atmosphere by 2025. The decision came in an August 2012 city council vote that orders a switch from coal to scrap wood and other sustainable forms of biomass for heat and power. And Copenhagen has also begun to cool its largest buildings using an offshore resource, cold seawater. Back in 2009, Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman visited the seawater cooling facility as it was being developed with engineer Jan Hoog. So now you are really, really, this is the heart of the cooling center. This is the inlet from the seawater system. Inside here you have the pipe coming in, and then you have these six pumps circulating the seawater into the cooling center and back to the harbor, a little bit warmer. Two pipes, each nearly a yard in diameter, buried 20 feet underground, recirculate water three quarters of a mile from Copenhagen's harbor. Originally built to cool off the old power plant's generators, today the system provides cold water to the new district cooling plant. If we didn't have these pipes, we didn't have this project. 
because it would be so expensive for us to put in new pipes in the ground. And although that they're more than 100 years old, they look fantastic. We just have to reline them. And now we use the seawater from the harbor to cool down our chiller units and to the so-called free cooling. And what is free cooling? You produce cold water purely from the water in the harbor. That's engineer Jan Hoog with reporter Bruce Gellerman. Well, environmental journalist Justin Gerdes dug into Copenhagen's carbon-cutting campaign during a recent fellowship from the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs International Press Initiative and wrote it up for Yale's E360 online magazine. Justin Gerdes reports that the cooling plant is now providing air conditioning at little cost to the environment. They estimate that doing cooling in this way reduces carbon emissions by nearly 70% and electricity consumption by around uh, 80% compared to conventional uh, air conditioning. And the cooling is used largely for... Uh, for now, it's largely really big buildings, so ones where more people gather. So it, it is hotels, office buildings, data centers, and right now it's mostly in the, the city center, but they're going to be expanding the network uh, in future years. But they don't intend to offer it to residential customers. It's actually a very elegant solution in the sense, too, that they repurpose the same network of underground tunnels that they use for their district heating system. So this is basically sending chilled water to individual buildings via a network of pipes. So not forced air air conditioning as we would think of it, typically uh, used in the United States. Of course, when you come into Copenhagen, you see all those uh, wind turbines out there in the, in the harbor. They seem to have a lot of electricity in Denmark. In fact, they might even have a surplus. How does this figure into their plan? That is very much in the plans. City officials are basically acknowledging that they won't be able to eliminate carbon emissions entirely within the city boundaries by the the timeline, so by the year 2025. And that's largely because of private vehicles. They need more time to convert those vehicles to alternative fuels or um, electricity. So they're compensating for those emissions by uh, exporting surplus wind from wind turbines located both on and offshore. And they're planning to add around 100 new wind turbines uh, over the next dozen years to do that. So uh, talk to me about transportation. Uh, In reading your article, I noted that uh, you say that Copenhagen is going to build a bike superhighway. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, most Americans, if they've heard anything about Copenhagen, they, they know it's a a bike city. It's one of the world's uh, best bike cities. And, you know, they've been remarkably successful. 36% of trips uh, in Copenhagen to school or, or to work are made by bike. And for residents of Copenhagen, that number is even larger. It's around half. But they realize that they need to do even more to entice residents and also, more importantly, uh, people commuting in from the suburbs to to take bikes. And so, they're investing money in uh, building up the bike infrastructure. So they're building these so-called uh, bike superhighways, and the first of them opened in April of last year, and it connects a suburb north of Copenhagen to the city center. Basically, they're very um, wide, smooth, better-lit bike paths that give these commuters a, a fast, easy, quick way to get into the city center and try to get, entice them out of their cars. How important are efforts by cities to reduce carbon emissions? The effort to, to slow climate change is, is really going to be won or lost in cities. You know, cities are 
responsible for you know around two thirds of both energy consumption and carbon emissions. So if we can follow the example of some of these you know forward thinking cities like Copenhagen, uh, ones that are already uh, you know presenting a visionary way forward and, and can show you know best practices. Um, I think uh, you know other cities, especially in developing countries, can learn from that example, and uh, we can start put a, a downward trajectory on emissions. How likely do you think it is that Copenhagen is going to meet this target? I think it is very likely. Right of center politicians in Denmark and Copenhagen uh, are not climate change deniers. They support uh, action on climate change. Uh, they only disagree, perhaps on uh, timelines and how much public money might go toward the effort. So, for example, the carbon neutrality plan that passed in Copenhagen in, in August of 2012, it did so with the support of right-of-center politicians. Similarly, last year in March, there was a, a national energy plan that passed in Denmark that's going to get the country off fossil fuels entirely by 2050. And it passed Parliament with the votes of 171 of 179 members. Uh, near consensus, which is you know pretty unthinkable in the context of today's uh, U.S. political climate. Justin Gerdes is a freelance environmental journalist. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Earth Day, April 22nd, was set as the official opening day of what Mr. Earth Day, Dennis Hayes, calls the greenest building in the world. It's a six-story office structure built to house the Bullitt Foundation, which Mr. Hayes heads, and other tenants they hope to attract. As workers were putting the finishing touches on the building, Ross Reynolds of member station KUOW in Seattle got Dennis Hayes to take him on a tour. This is a building that functions like an organism. Let's just say it has ears, it has eyes, it has, uh, it doesn't have a sense of smell, but it, it, it has pores that open and close automatically depending upon outside conditions. It has a sophisticated nervous system and it has a brain. Uh, it has an alimentary canal that, uh, that's the only six-story building in the world with composting toilets. And, and it functions very much like the Douglas fir forest functioned when it was here 150 years ago. Let's go inside this building that can see and hear and uh, is like a, okay. a living being. And I, and I should say that the water on the park, we're not bringing in irrigation water. This will all be watered naturally. The water that falls on the building, instead of running off and down a gutter and into the street and carrying hydrocarbons into a storm sewer into Puget Sound, the water will be used for all purposes inside the building. The gray water will then be filtered, infiltrated into the rain garden out in front. And just like, again, that Douglas fir forest, the water that falls on the site remains on the site. So we've done everything that we can with the core and shell of the building and with the tenant improvements that we put in. We've got the most efficient appliances that we can in the kitchens. But um, in the end, what's left is plug loads. It's what you as a tenant bring in and plug in as a computer, as a lighting system. And, and we've limited the budgets. When you come in, your lease contains provisions that says, this is how much energy you can use per square foot that you've leased. We've got these little kilowatt meters that let you measure everything that you are currently using and it tells you how much of a draw your computers are and your task lights are and your printer is and what have you. And, um, and then you just calculate a way to stay within that budget. 
Now, a water budget, too. So if I'm overflushing, uh, you might be knocking on my door and telling me about it? Uh, well, you'd have to overflush a whole lot because we have composting toilets that use trivial amounts of water. A flush is about one cup. Dennis Hayes is taking some time in his very busy week as they could prepare to move into their new building in Seattle to give us a tour and tell us about some of the features. So this will be our big education center, that this partnership for urban ecology between the University of Washington and the U.S. Green Building Council and us will operate. And this is a lovely space. It's got uh, floor-to-ceiling windows, and the ceilings here are really high, full of light, facing south, uh, great exposure. And by very high, we're talking in excess of 20 feet. Uh, we'll have all kinds of displays in here and things that will attract the public and will bring in school kids, but the real emphasis of this partnership is targeted. If you want to change radically the way that things are built, there are a number of decision makers that you need to get engaged. and They certainly include architects, but they tend to be wildly enthusiastic about this sort of thing anyway. Uh, developers, a little bit less so. Bankers, deeply skeptical. Appraisers, completely bewildered. So we're going to be having a series of programs to try to educate all of those about why it is desirable to have features from this building be commonplace. Uh, local politicians and, and uh, community leaders. I mean, two dozen things in this building would have been illegal under Seattle's prescriptive codes. But as long as we could show that this building, by being truly innovative in its integrated design, would have much better performance than the code would have produced, uh, they would give us an exemption and say, okay, we'll use your performance standards instead. And we'd love to get that replicated in thousands of cities across the country. I've got to say, I'm impressed with what you're showing me, Dennis, but I'm kind of wondering the cutting edge can be the bleeding edge. Is this Bullet Foundation building bulletproof, or is there technology in here that is a little bit experimental that you're not 100% sure is going to work? Uh, no, there's nothing in here that we're not 100% sure is going to work. That, that's to say every building gets commissioned, and we've got lots of things that are moving parts where windows that open automatically and close automatically. Shutters that come down automatically go up automatically. Um, there are things that are going to malfunction in the first month, and we've got a first-rate team of building managers who will get them fixed. It will be shaking down, but none of these are going to be permanent failures. Everything here exists someplace else. It's just not been put together in one package. And you mentioned the building sees, so that's one way it sees. It sees that it's time to close the shades? Exactly. The software on this is relatively sophisticated. The building has a brain. It has a nervous system. So across the street, we've got a nerve ending that is a weather station that tells you what's the temperature outside. Is the wind blowing? How fast is it blowing? What direction is it blowing from? Is it raining? And it feeds all of that information uh, along with the internal stuff from the building. How warm is it inside? What are the carbon dioxide levels? All that stuff goes down to the building's brain, and it decides whether the windows should be open or closed. Well, uh, what else would you like to show us next? Make the tour efficient. Why don't we show where the toilets go to, and then we'll, we'll show you the toilet itself. Um, we are now installing the connections between the toilets on the sixth floor and the compost bins in the basement. So we're descending now into the basement of the Bullet Foundation's office building here in the final weeks of construction. Dennis Hayes is giving us a tour and showing us right now where the poop goes. Uh, each of the bathrooms upstairs has itself connected 
connected through a set of pipes and sort of micro flushes on a foam base that comes down here. Inside it, there will be some compost inserted into it to start the process and some wood chips. And uh, it's just the way that poop has been dealt with by nature for millions and millions of years, except we do it here in a somewhat accelerated fashion. You know, you, there are things you can do with it in an anaerobic condition that is somewhat more sophisticated to produce natural gas, but it also tends to produce stuff that's kind of smelly and what have you. This, this does not. And um, so we, we decided to basically turn poop into fertilizer, and the poop will go out and be used as fertilizer. And there are grates down here, and they'll open up, and is that where the uh, fertilizer, finished fertilizer, will come out? That, that's true. And they will have to be emptied probably once every six months. Behind that wall of plywood is a 56,000 gallon cistern. The water that comes off of the roof goes back there and then as needed is pulled out. It's, it's filtered before it goes in, but then it goes into fine grain filters when it's pulled out. You see those three blue things down at that end. They are increasingly fine. By the time you get through the third filter, the second one filters out things as small as bacteria. The third one filters out things as small as viruses. So you get really pure water coming out of the filters. And then um, we put it through, just in case anything snuck past, uh, ultraviolet, so that we kill any last remnants that are there. After a year and a half of arguing with uh, various officials, we will chlorinate it, despite the fact that this water is incredibly pure, and pump it throughout the building, because there have been cases where some bad stuff has gone up through a faucet and down into the pipes to form what they call a biofilm, and even if you have pure water going to a place that's contaminated, um, it, can, it gets contaminated, where if it's chlorinated water, it kills anything that would hurt you as it passes through that. And then we'll have an activated charcoal filter on each of the taps, so that when it comes out, we're taking the chlorine back out of the water before you drink it. What delights you most about this building? If you were to say just what is the one thing that we take the greatest pride in, I, I think if you ask the average person on the street, could you generate enough power on the roof of your one-story house to meet your needs in Seattle? They say, no, the sun doesn't shine. We're showing that you can generate enough energy on an annual basis to meet the needs of a six-story building in Seattle. And I think that, that means that you've got to be super efficient in your use of energy, but I think it'll be a real revelation to people. You know, the, the roof of a six-story building is pretty much the same as the roof of a one-story building. We've extended ours a little bit, but it's still just a roof. And uh, I think that's really eye-opening. You mentioned you were going to charge market rates. Um, when will you make your nut on, on your investment in this building? Uh, well, we will be cash flow positive the first year, but um, the rate of return on our investment in the building through the first set of leases will be less than it would be if we put up a standard building and charge people standard rates, and we would have spent 25% less on construction costs, and so we would have gotten appropriately larger returns. And right now, this is an unusual building. There's a large number of people don't want to come to a building that has composting toilets and an irresistible stairway. It's sort of self-selecting a bunch of people who do want to ride their bikes to work, and and they tend to be the kinds of young people that software firms and communications firms and some engineering firms are trying to attract. So they're locating here. And over time, I, I think that if I were to bet as soon as 20 years from now, this will be the best performing single asset in the Bullet Foundation portfolio. And I pray that that's true because I persuaded my board to commit one third of our total endowment to this building. So, uh, But I feel a lot safer about this investment, which we can see and control and walk into and take care of than I do anything that we're putting into the stock market or some kind of third world derivatives. 
Earth Day Chairman and Bullet Foundation President Dennis Hayes speaking with Ross Reynolds of KUOW. Coming up, Earth Activism's greatest prize, the Goldman Environmental Award, is just ahead. Stay tuned for more at Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Since 1990, every year around Earth Day, the Goldman Environmental Prize winners are announced. There's one prize winner from each of the six inhabited continents, and each receives $150,000. Past winners include Nobel laureate Wangari Mathai, and all the winners are cited for their grassroots activism. This year's winners range from Italian zero-waste activist Rossini Ercolini to Indonesian forest defender Aleta Baum to Colombian recycler Nora Padilla. And there are three more we'll speak with in our broadcast, starting with Azam Awash of Iraq, who returned to his native land after 25 years in America to fight for the restoration of the Mesopotamian marshlands. The marshes of southern Iraq are a magical world. They are a wetland, water world, in the middle of a parched, flat desert. My memories of the place are very warm in my heart. It is a place where I went around with my father in a, in a boat as a young boy. To my mind's eye, the reeds towered above the boat, covered the sky. The water was clear, the fish darting away from the boats. And every now and then we come to a clearing and the breeze hits your face and cools you down. And you contrast that to the Iraq I came back to 25 years after I left. Death and destruction replaced this verdant place, this, this Eden, uh, where there were reeds before, there were now tumbleweeds, where there was water, there's salt-encrusted desert. When there was clear blue skies, it became dust-colored, yellowish sky. And as I understand it, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, drained thousands of square kilometers of these wetlands to both, I guess, punish the people who lived there and also to make it tougher for rebels who were operating from there. Do I have that right? Indeed. The marshes of southern Iraq are our Shirut forest. For eternity, the marsh Arabs went into the marshes and hid from the sheriff of Baghdad or uh, at any given time. It's a place where the army cannot pursue you, where you know the neighborhood better than anybody else, and where you can live off of nature without the need for outside resources. And so in 91, following the liberation of Kuwait, the Iraqi people went into rebellion. Saddam Hussein was afraid that the rebels would be used by the West to undermine his regime. And at a time when Iraq was not allowed to sell a single drop of oil, the entire GDP of the nation went into this massive, incredible project that ended up in the drying of the marshes or depriving the marshes of their source of life, of the water of the Tigris and Euphrates. This sounds like a massive project that Saddam Hussein did, and therefore a massive project to undo. How did, how did you go about restoring these marshlands, and where did the money come from to move all that earth? Ah, well, nature moves water. You see, 
All you have to do is dig a small ditch, maybe a foot wide, to the water level. And you know what? As soon as the water starts flowing, it starts washing the earth away and the force of nature uh, widens the breach from a one foot breach to 10 feet to 20 feet, depending on how much water there is. Within six months of water coming back to certain places where the conditions are just right, reeds begin growing and with the water comes the fish from upstream and the water buffalo comes back and the people start coming back. Now, you all have to understand that the marsh Arabs are not tree huggers like me or you. They are restoring the marshes because it is a way of life. It is a place where they can make a living out of. It's about the economy. It's not about the environment. It's a place where sustainable development and sustainable living has been practiced for thousands of years before we even knew this way of life by those terms. As I understand it, there's a proposed dam in Turkey, the Elisu, along the Tigris that, well, wouldn't it cut the amount of water that uh, these marshlands now get down to a trickle again? Well, commensurate with the drying of the marshes, Turkey began building not only the Liso Dam, but a series of huge dams, about 33 major dams that um, are holding the water of the Tigris and Euphrates away from the marshes. And in fact, these dams have changed the biodiversity of the marshes. The flood water that comes in in the spring as the snows of the mountains of Kurdistan start melting creates these marshes and drives the biodiversity of the marshes. These floods come in just as the reeds are turning from uh, winter hibernation, just as the birds are migrating, just as the fish is spawning. But more importantly, these floods, in fact, renewed the life of agricultural land, the grasslands around the perimeter of the marshes. And these floods essentially made agriculture sustainable in Iraq for seven, 8,000 years because there's a new layer of silt and clay that gets deposited every year from these floods. And one of the negative impacts of dams is the change of the hydrological cycle of rivers. So forevermore, or at least while the dams exist, the biodiversity of the marshes is going to change. We are changing from a flood system to a more brackish system. And I keep on telling the Iraqi officials that I'm not worried about the future of the marshes. Reeds can live in brackish water. Rice can't. And if the Iraqi government doesn't do anything to address the issue of flood irrigation, not only in Iraq, but in Turkey and Syria, then agriculture will die in the land where it was born. Azam Awash of Iraq is one of this year's winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. And now we turn to Kimberly Wasserman, who won for her community organizing that led to the shutdown of two coal-fired power plants within the city limits of Chicago. Let me start by asking, how did you learn about the health effects of coal plants on people who live near them? I heard about it first through the door-to-door organizing I did as a community organizer with uh, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. Um, I had just had my firstborn son, and I was taking him with me to go door-to-door and just talk with our neighbors. And over the course of the first couple of weeks, we really started to see a lot of families who had children with asthma or adults with asthma or seniors that were being impacted by bronchitis and other respiratory issues. And then about two months into my work, my son had uh, an asthma attack and in taking him to the emergency room um, and talking with a doctor, we learned that asthma actually isn't 
inherited. Um, it's based on the environment that you lived in. And so that was really the ammunition for myself to continue to go door to door and really try to find out, was there really a source for the air quality issues in our neighborhood? And over the course of about a year, we came across the coal power plant, a plant that looked very unassuming. It gave off white smoke that a lot of our young people called the cloud factory. And when we started to understand what the process for converting coal into electricity was and started to understand that there was actually a lot of contamination coming out of the smokestacks, we realized that we really believe that this might be the source of a lot of our problems. Now, as I gather, your neighborhood, the little village, is largely people of Mexican descent with a number of folks who don't have the appropriate paperwork to be in the United States. I imagine they were nervous about all this organizing and attention that you were, you were bringing to the neighborhood. Most definitely, you know, as as the Mexican Midwest capital, definitely immigration, language, and income played a lot into how people participated. But I think our leadership development really hit to that because we wanted our community members to know that regardless of language, regardless of immigration status, you have a fundamental right to clean air, clean land, and clean water. We may not um, speak English, but we pay our taxes. Um, we pay them every time we buy something in the store. We pay them every time we pay a mortgage on our house. And we are contributing to the society in our community um, and really just empowering our community to know that this is about their rights um, and reminding our politicians that we don't owe you anything. You owe us. Politicians work for us. We don't work for them. And if we can't change the way they're doing things, then we'll vote in the person who will. Now, take me back to a point where you had some researchers come in and document just how deadly these plants were for your community and what the reaction was to the numbers that they came up with. About two years after we started going door-to-door, the Harvard School of Public Health released a report on the coal power plants in Illinois. When we got our hands on it and we saw that, in fact, what we believed was true, that 41 people a year died in our community because of the coal power plants, over 3,000 asthma attacks a year, and over 1,500 emergency room visits a year. That was the ammunition that our community needed to go to our politicians and say, how can you sell our community out for profit? How can you sacrifice us for the sake of industry? Where did we go wrong as a community? Where did we go wrong as a nation? And unfortunately, the reality is was that 41 people dying a year did not move our politicians. They looked at it as, well, for the sake of jobs, we'll keep killing your people in your community. And it really took the education of not just our community, but all the communities in Chicago to understand that the air pollution did not stop at our boundaries of our community. It impacted us all, and we all had to hold these folks accountable. Those numbers are astonishing. I mean, if the plants were there for 40 years and killed about 40 people a year, that's like 1,600 people died. Exactly. And actually, they were there for about 60 years, so we're looking at about 3,000 people. What happened to those power plants, and how has your neighborhood changed as a result of your work? As of leap day of last year, the coal power plant announced that they would be shutting down, and in September of 2012, they did. The air quality has greatly improved. You know, we are right now working on collecting a lot of the data to understand how have the asthma rates locally been impacted. But we do know that by looking at other cities, when Atlanta hosted the Olympics, uh, the local emergency rooms actually saw an 8% drop because the highways were shut down in downtown Atlanta to accommodate the Olympics. And so if you can have an 8% drop just from shutting down the local highways, we can only imagine what the impact would be by shutting down two of the dirtiest coal power plants in Chicago. As part of our Earth Day coverage, we're speaking with some of this year's winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. That was Kimberly Wasserman of Chicago, and now we go to Jonathan Deal of South Africa. 
He took on Shell Oil and its plans to frack for gas in South Africa's wild and scenic drylands known as the Karoo. The Karoo, it's a rural area, uh, quite sparsely populated to give people a parallel in the United States. It looks something like Wyoming. It's a very arid area with a beautiful and rich diversity of succulents. And one of the unique things about it is that everybody that lives in it, wherever they come from and whatever their culture or creed is, has some type of historical connection with the Karoo. Their families either come from there or they've got some memory of the Karoo. And my personal love affair with the environment there started when I wrote and published a book in 2007 called Timeless Karoo. Tell me, what exactly have you been able to accomplish in terms of blocking the fracking in South Africa there? At the very least, um, even if it were to go ahead, we would have a very stringent set of rules and conditions and a much more delayed and measured start to the technology than what you have seen in the United States. It has put our government into a position where they could negotiate with a company like Shell to get far more benefits for the country from any sort of revenues if it ever went ahead. You have a national moratorium on it at this point. Uh, The moratorium was lifted in September the 8th last year, and uh, the Minister of Environment, who is a fairly arrogant lady, almost gave the impression that the licenses for exploration would be issued in a week or two, and here we are in April the next year, and I believe that it's as a result of a number of formal letters that we have written to the government promising them that if they issue exploration licenses under these circumstances, we will see them in court. Jonathan, what can Americans who oppose fracking in this country learn from your efforts? It's a two-way street. What we can learn together is to harness the power of the media. I want to leave America with the guts of a global coalition starting. And um, whether I'm busy in a small town in the Northern Cape of South Africa called Williston, or we're talking about an activist busy with the town of Williston in North Dakota, We need to be able to speak to a local representative and say, you might think that this issue is local and you're going to get away with sweeping it under the carpet, but I'm promising you that we're going to take it global. Now, something that's true for all of you is getting other people on board. How hard or how easy was that for each of you? I mean, Kimberly, you had to convince folks who are undocumented to speak up. Uh, Assam, you lived in a very dangerous part of the world. And of course, uh, Jonathan, the Karoo is this vast rural place, not a lot of people. Steve, it's very difficult to get people to respond to something unless they feel an immediate threat, because essentially you're asking them to sacrifice uh, time or money, uh, resources that are, are very scarce to a lot of people. Essentially, the way I had to pitch it was to tell them that we're working on the future. This is not for us. It's for future generations of unborn Africans. The effects of what's going to happen is going to come home to roost in future generations. In the case of the Marsh Arabs or Iraq in general, the most difficult task was to convince people that democracy works, that if you actually organize and make sure that your voice reaches decision makers, change will come. The Iraqis that I met in 2003 had grown up under 50 years of authoritarian regimes where decisions come from top and everybody executes without question. Then you tell them that 
10 of you can come up to Baghdad to tell decision makers about the desires of your community and the difficulty was the first time they went there was no action the second time they went there was no action and to keep on preaching to them that in the end it'll work uh, that was the difficult task but now they actually organize trips on their own it's beautiful they are learning the skills needed to survive in a democratic Iraq now it's clear that your hard work paid off for all of you but there must have been times during the process that you wanted to give up. Where were those? And how did you get past those low points? Yeah. When your daughter calls you crying because you missed a birthday, when your wife calls you because there's a bill that she doesn't know how to deal with, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It is times when you question your sanity and, and what is it that you're doing. But the job is not done and you can't leave it midway. I think the hardest part is when you fail, when you try to have something happen, be it an ordinance or a law or a moratorium, or you try something that doesn't work, you can very easily just decide, you know what, I have nothing left in me and I have nothing else to give. But I think the hard part is getting up and, and wiping yourself off and standing up and saying, you know what, I'm going to learn whatever lesson it is that I'm supposed to learn from this and I'm going to stand back up again and I'm going to keep moving forward and try to find that muster to keep moving on. And I think knowing that as much as we sacrifice with our families and as much as we sacrifice with our community, that they're looking to us to do the right thing and to keep moving forward. You've spent a number of, of hours, days now, with the other prize winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. What have you learned from meeting each other? I think that what I've learned is that the answer is right here in front of us, and it comes from every corner of the world. The reality is, is that our solutions are in our voice and in our communities, and we just need to keep fighting and pushing them forward. I've learned that there are battles around the world that many of us are not even aware of. I've met three women, the prize recipients, Kimberly, Nora, and Letta, and um, the, the two ladies, one from Indonesia and the other one from Colombia, are absolutely the bravest women I've ever met. Here, here. For me to stand up um, against a giant like Shell in a, in a well-functioning democracy like South Africa is one thing. For them to take on the corporate and the government interests in countries like Colombia and Indonesia takes real guts. I'm looking at every one of us, and my conclusion is that we're all stubborn. We do not give up, mm. and that's what it takes, I think. Dam Alwash is an Iraqi. Jonathan Deals, a South African, and Kimberly Wasserman is from the south side of Chicago. They're three of this year's six Goldman Environmental Prize winners. Thanks to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. On the next Living on Earth, what's possible if only we could store renewable energy? My utopian view here is for every home in suburban America and Canada not to be connected to the grid in any way. A new way to make that dream come true. That's next time on Living on Earth. Produced by the World Media Foundation, 
Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Alicia Zhuang, Kainat Khan, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Dana Chisholm and Noel Flatt helped with engineering this week. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. A special thanks this week to KUOW Seattle. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.